Let's turn to the 49th chapter of Isaiah, continue our studies in these servant songs. When uh, George Allen first moved to uh, Washington, D.C. to become coach of the Redskins, he promised the city a Super Bowl in two seasons. And I don't know if you remember back that far, but uh, in the preseason they won every game and everyone had great expectations for uh, the team and they actually won a couple of regular season games and then they began to lose and lose and lose and the media really got on them particularly on Sir Sonny Jurgensen who was the uh, who was their quarterback at the time and some newspaper uh, reporter interviewing Jurgensen asked him if he didn't ever get discouraged by all of the criticism and didn't he want to quit and I thought Jurgensen's answer was, uh, was a good one. He said, no. He said, my job is to quarterback this team, and I've been around the league long enough to know that on any given week, an NFL quarterback is either in the penthouse or in the outhouse. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a good response. Jurgensen has what, uh, what is called a plum, the uh, capacity to be self-assured in the face of all sorts of adversity because he knew what his job was. He knew what he was about. He knew what he was there for. He was to uh, quarterback that team, and that meant whatever uh, hostility he encountered. It didn't matter because he, he had a job to do. Now, my question is, do you know what your job is, and do I know what, what mine is? Well, the servant did, and it's spelled out here in Isaiah 49 for us. It was his uh, assignment, and it's ours as well. This is the uh, second of the, <clears throat> of the servant songs, the first in chapter 42 that we looked at two weeks ago. And uh, it divides very nicely into three divisions. He uh, first makes announcement to the islands or to the Gentile nations of his call and the nature of his ministry. And then he makes proclamation to the Gentiles in verses 5 through 7 and then to Israel, verses 8 through 13. Let's look at the first section. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my beauty. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. He begins by addressing himself to the, uh, to the islands or to the distant nations. The uh, islands were the people scattered around the uh, Mediterranean coastland, the nations off to the west, Greece and Italy and Cyprus and Crete. These were the proud sophisticated people of that day who had who had everything they had uh, power and prestige they had the great philosophers all the gadgetry of of those days and uh, yet as we've seen in the book of Isaiah they were they were a desperate people they had everything but they didn't want anything that that they had and it's to these people that the uh, servant of the Lord announces his his mission before I was born he says the Lord called me and he gave me a name while I was still in my mother's womb. This idea of a prenatal call 
uh, is found frequently in the Old Testament with reference to uh, the prophets. Jeremiah was said to have been called from his mother's womb. The same is said of John the Baptist. And uh, even Paul in Galatians 1 makes this statement. We're inclined to think that this is only true of certain people. There are special spokesmen, prophets of God, who were called before they were, they were born. But uh, that's not true. The New Testament tells us that that's true of all of us. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. So uh, we also have a, have a prenatal call. God knew us in our, in our mother's womb. Therefore, you are not some sort of genetic accident. You can't disqualify yourself because of certain factors in your personality or your physical makeup that you can't do anything about. We're inclined to look at ourselves and say, Oh, what can I do? How can I be useful to the Lord? I'm too short. Or I'm overweight. I have a tendency toward putting on weight. How, how could I ever be useful? The people that God uses, you know, are Mr. and Mrs. Electric. They, uh, they scintillate. They... They, they dazzle you with their uh, personality. They're witty. And if I were like that, then I could do something for God. But uh, do you realize that God made you exactly the way you are to fulfill the particular destiny that He has in mind for you and for me? Uh, we're designed by God according to a great and perfect blueprint. Everything about us, the uh, size of your nose and, and the kind of personality that you have, the intellect that, uh, that was given you from the very... All of that was given because God has a particular purpose for you. So no one is disqualified, see? Now, there was a time when Paul thought that he was. He had some sort of uh, debilitating sickness, illness. We don't know exactly what it was, but apparently it was disfiguring. And he, uh, three times, asked the Lord to take it away because he thought that, that hindered him, that kept him from from uh, being the, the powerful man that he could be. But the Lord said, no, that's no problem to me. As a matter of fact, your weakness becomes an opportunity for me to display my strength. The same thing was true of Moses. Apparently Moses had some sort of uh, uh, speech impediment. He may have stammered. He describes himself as thick of tongue, and slow of speech. When the Lord called him to deliver his people, and he was to be God's spokesman to Pharaoh. That was his disclaimer. I'm slow of speech. What can I do? How can I... Can you imagine walking into, uh, into Pharaoh's court and stammering out the message, let my people go? <laughs> and Moses didn't think he could, he could handle the assignment. But uh, the Lord didn't say, Oh, Moses, I, I forgot. You do have that problem. Let's see. We'll have to see if Aaron can do the job. He said, no, that's not what he says. He says, Moses, who made your tongue? Who made you dumb or deaf or seen? Is it not I? See, the Lord made us exactly the way we are for the particular task that he has in mind for us. Therefore, none of us is, uh, is disapproved. None of us can claim exemption from, from service because of some genetic factor. God made us that way. And as a matter of fact, uh, the, the things that we tend to look at as, as inhibiting factors are not at all. They're simply opportunities for God to display His grace. So no one is disqualified. The second thing that uh, we read here 
uh, in the song is a word about his uh, ministry itself. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In other words, his, his words were incisive and penetrating. As one commentator puts it, he was capable of, of inflicting wholesome wounds on others. Just seemed to know exactly what to say and say it in such a penetrating way. And uh, he made me into a polished arrow, literally a select arrow. Every bowman in those days had, a, had arrows that were his favorite uh, because they, they flew true to the target. Uh, you, you could count on them. And that's the way he describes himself. And he is in the shadow of his hand. In other words, uh, the Lord is like, like a, a man going off to war and he straps his sword to his thigh under his hand where he can reach for it quickly. And uh, he made me into a polished arrow, a choice arrow, and concealed me in his quiver. The servant is to the Lord as a sword and arrows would be to a warrior. Right at hand where the Lord could lay his hand on these instruments and, and use them. Now, we'll see next week what was involved in the preparation of the, of the servant. But it's enough to say at this point that the Lord just seemed to know what to say at the right time. It, just, it wasn't a gift of gab. It was a knowledge of the Word. He had to learn, just as we learn, about life from the Word and about people from the Word. He grew in stature and in knowledge, as we do, as he put his roots down into the, into the Word. Because what makes us penetrating and insightful is not native intelligence, necessarily. It's knowledge of God's Word. That's what equips us, as Paul says, for every good work. Um, years ago, a friend of mine was called to testify in a, in a trial in Palo Alto. It had to do with a particular kind of business that was going in next to uh, Palo Alto High School. And uh, my friend was concerned because he felt that 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 business was inappropriate in a neighborhood where there were children, and he expressed, or high school people, and he expressed his concern. And uh, happened to be subpoenaed to appear as a witness. And he was being examined by the attorney in the trial, and the man, the attorney for the plaintiff, and he said, look, he said, if we don't put in this, uh, this business, somebody will. It's just a question of time. And my friend was at a loss for anything to say for a moment when uh, a passage of Scripture came into his mind. And he had a New Testament in his pocket, and so he reached into his coat pocket and he took it out, and he just he didn't say anything. He turned to Luke 17, and he began to read, where Jesus says, It is necessary that sin come, but woe be to him through whom it comes. For it would be better for him that a millstone be hanged around his neck and he be cast in the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. And he folded up his New Testament he put it back in his pocket. And the attorney just turned white as a sheet. <laughs> All he did was read Scripture. And it hit home. That's the kind of... Uh, that's the penetrating, insightful use of the word that characterized the servant. We'll see more of this next week. And then in verse 3, the Lord says to the servant, You are my servant Israel, 
And here we have this interplay again between the nation and the individual who represents the nation. And apparently the point of this uh, promise is that the Lord would represent Israel. He would be Israel par excellence. He would be what Israel was intended to be, one in whom God would display his beauty. In other words, his character would simply be a display of the beauty of God's character. But the servant, like all of us, had misgivings. I said, in, in response to this promise, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain for nothing. It seems odd to think of the Lord in those terms that he grew discouraged at times, but apparently he did. He was, he was human. Not merely human. He, he was a God-man, but he was a man. And there were times when he, like us, was, uh, was discouraged. But in those times, he just took another and more firmer grasp on the Lord. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, he says, and my reward is with my God. He, he's learning to count on the Lord. He realizes that, that the Lord is his success, the Lord is his power, not his personality, not anything innate in him. It's what God is going to do that uh, will make him a useful servant. We get discouraged, I think, because we don't see things realistically. God doesn't measure up to our expectations. But what God wants to do is exceed our expectations. That's what Paul says. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we can ask or think. We think God is going to work in a particular way, and He may choose an entirely different way to work and exceed our expectations. But we don't always see it. We're so used to instant everything, we want results now. And we forget that the harvest is not at the end of the meeting or at the end of our conversation with our neighbor, but at the end of the age, that God is working through, through all of life to accomplish his purposes. And he'll use us as a part of, of that big picture that he's painting. We just need to trust him, make ourselves available to him, and count on him. We, we won't always see what he's doing, but we can be confident that he is at work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, there are two things that the servant is called to do. These first uh, three verses describe his call and his preparation for ministry, and then the, the service itself that he is to perform is described for us in verses 5 through uh, 7 in verses 8 through 13. First, he makes an uh, announcement to the Gentiles. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. Now, you'll notice this is the Lord speaking, but parenthetically, the servant reminds himself of the unique relationship that he has with the Lord. And then the Lord himself begins to speak in verse 6. To the servant, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you see what he's saying? The Lord says to his servant, you are to restore Israel. And the servant says, oh, I have tried, but it's hard, and I don't see the results. It's a big job. And the Lord says, you think that's a big job? I got a bigger. You're going to be a light to the Gentiles. That, that's the kind of Lord we have. He gives us a job to do, and we say, that's too big. And he says, I've got a bigger one for you. That's encouragement? It is. If we understand the, the infinite resources that we have in our Lord, 
This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and arise, princes will see and bow down. This to the servant, princes and kings, he says, will bow down to you. Why? Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. I'm sure that's the passage Paul in mind had in mind when he said to the Corinthian church, He who has called you is faithful, and he will do it. It all depends upon Him. You, he says, are to be a light to the Gentiles. That's your first assignment. Be a light. Be a source of light. And that's our responsibility as well. We are described as those who shine like lights in the world. And uh, the Lord warned us about hiding our light under a bushel or we're to put our our light on the... we're to let it shine and it's to shine from the top of the hills. It's to be seen. Now, we're inclined to think when he, he says, let your light shine, that he's simply talking about our Christian character, but he's not. Our Lord makes that clear when he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify my Father who is in heaven. Uh, good works are not, uh, not equated with letting your light shine. That's the way we use that expression sometimes. I'm just letting my light shine. I'm just being... Uh, a loyal and obedient Christian in my neighborhood or in my office. But Jesus says, when we let our light shine, then they'll see our good works. In other words, we're to make proclamation. Because if we don't tell people what it is that makes, it, makes us different, they look at us and they think, well, that's, what, a, what a great guy. Well, put together personality. And they don't understand the secret of our life. So we need to be witnesses. And you say, oh, no, not another message on witnessing. That's, uh, that's not my thing. I was born with a silver foot in my mouth. I don't, uh, I don't have the gift of gab. No, maybe you don't. There are some who have the gift of evangelism. There are others who don't. But we're all to be witnesses. And a witness simply tells people what you've seen and heard and experienced. That's all. Uh, I was involved in an automobile accident one time. I was the driver of the vehicle. I was hit by a moving van. And the attorney talked to me a week or so afterward about, a, about the case that never went to court. But he was questioning me, and he said, What happened? And I said, Well, to tell you the truth, I don't know. I was just driving along, and uh, this truck came in from the right and, and hit me, but I didn't see it. And he said, Well, how do you know it came in from that direction? And I said, Well, there was a fellow standing on the corner, and he saw the whole thing happening, and he, he told me what, what occurred. And the attorney said, that won't work. You can't tell them that. You can't say that. All you can do is tell them what you saw, what you experienced. And no secondhand uh, witness. And that's all we can do. Simply tell people what's happened to us. Tell them what you've learned from the Word recently. What you've learned out of your experience of, of prayer. That's all. No spurious witness. You know, we don't need to pump ourselves up and uh, try to witness to something that isn't real and true in her life. Just be honest and out front. Tell people what's happening to you. I heard recently of a woman who was uh, talking to a skeptic, a young man who was very cynical about, about the gospel and particularly about the miracles that Jesus performed. And she, he was questioning her about uh, Jesus turning water into wine. And she said, he said, you, you can't tell me that Jesus actually turned water into wine, that the chemical composition of that of that water changed. And the whole process of fermentation took place in a moment of time. She said, well, I can't, I can't 
really comment on that. I, I don't know. But I'll tell you something that I do know. He said, uh, John, uh, my husband, was a heavy equipment operator, and life for him was, uh, you know, just 8 to 5, and then it was Miller time. And he was, he was literally drinking up his paycheck every, every week. And we didn't, have, we didn't have money to put groceries on the table or buy clothes for the kids. And we just couldn't make ends meet. But when my John became a Christian, Jesus turned beer into groceries. <laughs> now, that's, that's talking out of your own experience, you see. We don't always do it perfectly either. There aren't any impeccable people here. I'm not, and you're not. And when we fail, we need to be honest about it. No one expects us to be anything more than transparent and honest in what we are. Let me tell you a secret. You know, most of us in, in our conversations with one another don't really expose ourselves. We don't talk to the real person. We tend to talk to imaginary people. Let me tell you what I mean. When I'm with someone who's cynical, if I don't watch out, I start picking that up, and I become a cynic too. And the person who's talking to me is talking to an imaginary person. Same thing's true being around people who are flip and glib. We tend to snap things off and we just fit in. But that's not the real person. They're talking to an imaginary third person. That's not me. It's not real. But when we get real and honest and open, we find that people begin to open up. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, I have opened up my heart to you. Now you open up your heart to me. That's how you get people to open up. You open up. Stop playing games. Just be real. I was telling the men Wednesday morning of a friend of mine. A lot of you know her, so I won't mention her name. She uh, uh, is quite prominent on the West Coast, speaks a great deal to women's groups, Christian women groups. And uh, she got into a fight with her husband one morning, and she was really mad. And she was going through the kitchen, slamming the cabinet doors and swearing at the top of her lungs. She was really angry. And she walked by the screen door and looked out of the screen door, and there stood her neighbor with a cup of sugar in her hand. She'd borrowed it a couple of weeks before and was bringing it back, and this was a lady she'd been witnessing to. Now, what would you do in a situation like that? I think the tendency would be to cover up and fake it, but she didn't. She just laughed, and she said, Come on in. She said, You know, that's the way I am. That's why I need a Lord. That's why Christ has come to mean so much to me, because without Him, I'd be that kind of person all the time. And the woman just opened up. She broke down, began to cry, and share her own uh, struggles in her marriage. And, and eventually, uh, this lady was able to lead her neighbor to Christ. Now, that's all it means to be a witness. Just be real. Be honest. Be authentic. Open up your heart to people. And you'll find that people will open up their hearts uh, to you. The, the thing that makes it work, as the servant is told, is that the Lord is faithful. It's not even our faithfulness. It's the Lord who is faithful. That enables us to relax and enjoy it, because it all depends on Him. I don't need to be uh, so uptight about life, because it all depends upon Him. Uh, when Doc... Uh, Oh, what's his name? He was our speaker at the men's conference. Byron. When Dr. Byron was here several weeks ago, he reminded me of a story of Billy Graham that I had forgotten. <clears throat> when Graham was in Herringay, 
a group of students from uh, Oxford uh, reserved 400 seats in a block right in front of the podium, ostensibly to bring their non-Christian friends, but in reality to heckling. And one of the guys uh, in that group rented a monkey suit, an ape suit, and he had it hidden under the chair. And his plan was to put it on when Graham was giving the invitation. And that's exactly what he did. They sat there quietly through the whole service. And uh, then this young man got down under the seat and he put the monkey suit on and he leaped up on the chairs just as Dr. Graham was starting to give the invitation. And he began to cavort around on the stage. And, and of course, people were aghast. Some people were angry. They were shaking their fists. And other people were laughing. And it just destroyed the meeting. Just destroyed it. Now, I don't know how you would react to something like that, but Dr. Graham stood there for about a minute with a bemused look on his face and watched this young man jump around in his monkey suit. And when it was all over, he laughed. He laughed at the young man who had ruined his meeting. And he said, well, he said, and to think that my relatives came from England. <laughs> and, of course, everybody was with him from that point on. Now, my question is, can we be that relaxed about things that non-Christians do or your neighbors do because you realize that it doesn't depend upon you? It depends upon God. They can spoil things for us. It's all right. We can relax and enjoy life and give witness because the one who called us is faithful and he will do it. The next uh, and final section of the uh, song is a description of his ministry to Israel. Uh, five through seven, his ministry to the Gentiles. And then uh, eight through thirteen, to his own people. In a time of my favor, I will answer you, and in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you a covenant for the people. A ministry is not something we generate on our own. It's something that's given to us. The servant is a covenant in the sense that he is the sign of the covenant that God made with his people. He promised that they would have a land. And the servant is the one who enables them to possess the land. And so he's described here as a covenant, a sign of God's loyalty. And his ministry is to restore the land, to reassign its desolate heritage inheritances, to say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness be free. Now, the historical setting for this is the exile. Back uh, latter part of the 6th century, all of Judah had been taken into exile into Babylon. And uh, they stayed there for anywhere from 50 to 70 years, depending on which wave of exile uh, you experienced. And then they didn't want to come back. They had their children they were concerned about. They didn't want to make that long trek back to Palestine. Uh, all the irrigation... Uh, Facilities had been destroyed. They had to start from scratch. They had to rebuild their farms, rebuild their cities. They were much more comfortable in, in Babylon. They didn't want to go. They had a long, hard, hot, dry trip across the desert, and they wanted to stay. But the ministry of the servant is to say to the captives, Come out, and to those in darkness, be free. In other words, go back to the land. Be free from slavery. They will feed beside the roads. Whenever God issues commands, he always gives what's required to fulfill them. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. In other words, there will be adequate pasturage for their flocks. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. 
He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my road, all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar. These scattered exiles, they'll come from the north and from the west and from the region of Sinem. That may be China, that far east. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Now, again, historically, this is a word to the exiles, but it's interesting to see how Paul uses this passage in 2 Corinthians 6, 1. He quotes verse 8, In the time of my favor I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you. And it's, it, it's quoted with regard to his ministry. He describes himself as an ambassador for Christ, representing Christ, calling men back to Christ. And now he says to those who have been called back, don't receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, those of you that have been reconciled to Christ, put that relationship to use. Don't let it become an empty thing. Start acting on the basis of truth. Start obeying. For, he says, and then he quotes verse 8, at the right time I called you. So do it now. This is the day of salvation, he says. Interesting use of this of this song, because what he's doing is applying to the church, and he's saying to the church, start believing, start obeying God. And it just struck me as I read through this again, that really our ministry consists of encouraging other people to believe God. That's really all it amounts to. That's what we're called to do. I can't generate faith in someone else. If, if faith is some sort of mystical quality, if it just consists of believing things that are hard to believe, I can't generate that in you. But what I can do is encourage you to obey the truth. Wherever the Lord commended someone for their faith in the New Testament, in every place that I've been able to find, it's because they acted in obedience to some specific command. They did what they were told. And that's what we are to do for one another. That's how we encourage one another. We take the word and we encourage people to obey the word. That's all the servant is doing to the exiles. Is, Look, God has promised to give you everything that you require for this journey. He wants you back in the land. Now do it. Go. And that's what we do for one another. That's why Hebrews says, uh, encourage one another. Stir one another up to love and good works. Lift up the hands that have fallen down. Strengthen the knees that have become weak as we walk along and we... Have a, we all have a tendency to get discouraged and want to fall out. Hebrews says, move it alongside. Encourage one another to act according to the truth. Had a long conversation just this past week with a man who has left his wife. And really the only encouragement I could give is to cleave to her because that's what Scripture says. Leave mother and father and cleave to one another. Well, he says, but things are tough. I said, sure they are. But God wants you to cleave to her. And faith is simply doing what God has called you to do. Now, that's our job. Wherever we go, it's to be a light to those outside the family, and within the family, it's to encourage belief, encourage people to obey, trust God. Just do the thing that they know they have to do. And if we're doing those things, we'll be fulfilled. Uh, a lot of you I know are frustrated right now because of the uh, downturn in the economy. And uh, I think a lot of us are learning, perhaps some for the first time, that, that money in itself will never make you happy. And uh, possessions and position in the company, or they won't. It, it, the more we get, the more we want. But the thing that will satisfy you and fulfill you is to do what God has called you to do, to be a light to the nations and to be a source of encouragement 
to the believers around you. And if you're doing those things, you'll be fulfilled. A number of years ago, I heard uh, Warren Webster, who for years was a missionary to Pakistan, say, If I had my life to live over again, I would live it to change men because you haven't done anything until you've changed the lives of men. He's right. He's right. The Lord's never going to ask me how much money I made at the end of the year or at the end of the age. He's never going to ask me if I made it to the top of my profession. The real question is, to what measure was I willing to fulfill the ministry of a servant? To the world and to God's people. Let's pray. Let's stand together. Father, how easy it is for us to get trapped into believing that things are important, mere possession or accumulation of, of things will fulfill us. And yet we know, and looking back on our own experience, that <clears throat> the more we have, the more we want. And uh, we, we thank you for this time in history when things are so hard to come by. And therefore, we learn that, that we can be fulfilled and satisfied in other ways. Help us, Lord, to uh, put away our discontent, our restlessness, our anger over the, uh, the state of the economy and, and the other pressures that we experience. And help us to be your men and women serving you, looking for opportunities to be of help to those around us, being a source of light and truth to those that we, that we meet each day. Thank you that the one who called us is faithful, and he will do it. In Jesus' name, amen.